I, I still feel that it's very emotional reading that book for me. Like I cannot even like I'm reading the introduction and it's already make me cry. Like, oh my God, I, I understand how, I mean, like it's very difficult. And I read another chapter and oh my God, there's a, there's a story about the survivor, which is I always imagine my family when I read that. Hi, I'm Liliana Chan, and this is the Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity. Um, I'm here with my co-host, Wei Chan, Hi. and two amazing guests. We have the American journalist and author of this book, The Jakarta... Oh, is that mirrored? It's The Jakarta oh. Method by Vincent Bevins. So amazing. this is Vincent Bevins, and he's talking to us from Berlin in a Syrian cafe. So that's yes. the ambient noise that you may sometimes hear. And the Indonesian journalist, Fabriana Ferdowth. I hope I said your name correctly. Who yeah. is talking to us from Bali. Great. Thank you both for coming. Thank you hour. so much. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, Thank you. And I just want to say that this is the Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity. I personally am pretty bad with names and dates and also facts. So if you catch me saying anything that's incorrect, just please, uh, please just correct me. <laughs> so I'm not spouting misinformation. Um, okay, so let's start with um, just basically why this is called the Jakarta Method, what the Jakarta Method is and, and why Jakarta and not like say Guatemala or um, whatever. So we get an idea of what this book is about. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, uh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah. The the book to the Jakarta Method is about anti-communist mass murder. It's about the intentional extermination of people for being leftists or or accused of being leftists. And although Indonesia, nineteen sixty five, the U.S. and U.K. backed uh, slaughter of between a half million and a million people is not the only. Um, or the first episode in this story. I think it's the most important story, um, the most important episode in this story, I think. And um, the term Jakarta enters the Cold War vocabulary because after this, this massacre in 1965 in Indonesia, other right-wing groups around the world, um, either anti-communist groups, allies of the United States, potential allies of the United States, took inspiration from what happened in Indonesia. And in Chile and in Brazil in the early 70s, they started using the word Jakarta to denote this plan, this method, this thing that they that they um, intended to do to their own leftists, and, and this this did happen in Chile and then throughout elsewhere throughout South America and Central America, afterwards. So, Indonesia 1965 is not only I think one of the most important victories of the Cold War uh, for the the side that ultimately won. It inspired this sort of metaphor, metonym that 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 uh, that took flight um, in the 70s and 80s. It also seems to be the biggest event I've never heard of in my life, to be honest. Um, yeah, so how it, big it, is this yeah. event? Like, let's just say. Um... Well, yeah, as I said, between between half a million and a million innocent uh, people were slaughtered, and Indonesia, now the world's fourth largest country by population, one of the real leaders and founders of the Third World Movement, flipped entirely from being a left-leaning anti-colonial power to one of the most fervent uh, anti-communist uh, countries and one of the most the closest allies of Washington in the Cold War. So. It's a really, really big, uh, big event, I think. Um, and so 
You know, when I was talking to Fabriana um, earlier, we, I think we both had this question kind of, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Fabriana, you can correct this, but we were, I was a bit like, how did an American <laughs> come to write about this topic? Like why, yeah, why? Um, so really, could you tell us a little bit about that? How did you even come to this idea? Yeah, well, well, Fabriana herself, I mean, I'm, I'm really honored that she's here, too, because she she was a huge help to me at the very beginning of, of, of this research when I didn't know anything. I still would not claim that I know very much about the actual Indonesian story. So I wasn't an expert on 1965 Indonesia when I started, and I'm still not now. Um, and she provided huge amounts of help of connecting me to the sort of the real activists and victims and scholars that have been working on this for decades. What I saw my role here was, is that I, I got to Indonesia in 2017 and my, my, technically my job was to cover the region for U.S. newspapers for the Washington Post primarily. Um, but I found that le lurking below the surface and whatever I was doing, whatever story I was trying to work on was this bigger story about 1965 in Indonesia. Um, and when I looked closer at it, I realized that it was not only something that Americans didn't really know about, number one. So that's, that's again, as you know, basic journalistic practice. That's number one. This is something that's important. Number two, I realized it was something that my own government was deeply complicit in that had committed really um, horrible atrocities. And number three, and this was the weird sort of random thing, is that it connected to other parts of the world where I had lived before, where I know the languages, where I was able to sort of make a connection that perhaps... Um, uh, 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 not everyone would be able to make. So I saw my role here as kind of just taking the narrative that had already been established by experts in, in Indonesia, like, you know, uh, on Indonesia, like John Rusa, Oscar Wardaya, uh, Bradley Simpson, taking the, uh, the work, uh, building on the work that, you know, activists and survivors have done for decades, and then just sort of globalizing the story, taking really the basics, not mm -hmm. trying to, not trying to retell it, not trying to do a better job in any way, but to insert it into this larger story of the Cold War to make primarily people in my country understand how important this was, and the degree to which my government, the, the government that technically we have democratic control over, uh, was complicit in crimes against humanity. Wow. Um, and then... That's kind of how you ended up meeting Fabriana. Um, so you did, to an extent, um, work together on on the fact finding mission for the book, or how did how did that work? I met her. I met her before. Right? I think that's right. Right, Can right I Fabriana. Just, um, yeah, please jump in there and mm. actually ask Fabriana this question. Um, so what went through your mind? What went through your mind when you got this uh, in email from? I guess, like, what were you thinking? Yeah. This email from I'm, the I'm just, journalist? I'm just hysterious on everything. So um, because I'm a local journalist, I know, like, I'm an Indonesian journalist, and I cover, like, various issues in my country, from Aceh to West Papua, I think. And so many, like, foreign journalists email me, right? Even, like, the editor want to interview me. Um, so I didn't really reply to all that email. Um, and I feel that um, I'm also like having something that I'm doing. So I, did, I didn't reply, if, I, if, if I'm not mistaken, like his email, like for like six months, 
the first time his email because I have this uh, very bad image of foreign journalists. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have so many like bad experience with them. Even like the foreign journalists who never traveled to West Papua, they're trying to mansplain me. So um, I have like the same uh, opinion about at first, even like before I knew um, Vincent. So I, I just think like, oh, Vincent, just another foreign journalist emailed me. What's the point? And then I saw him on Twitter. I saw like his article and I did a little bit research. It's a little bit creepy, Vincent, but I did <laughs> I was just like, I have to be careful. No one taking advantage of, of me, like what happened to me before. Like people just want to contact people just 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 want to come to my country for his career I have like this this very bad opinion about the foreign journalist but then just I saw him and I saw that he mingled with the I know I know I know I have so many friends in Indonesia that who he met even like in, in abroad, like I know exactly because everyone told me, do you know Vincent? We met Vincent. I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> he, he met this guy. Okay, oh, oh he tried to mingle with, uh, with my, the networking, like trying to write a story. And then, and then I, I finished all my deadline and then I decided to replay the email <laughs> and that's how we met. And then, okay, I think he's serious about this right thing. And then, I have all the source that he wants if he, he wants it. So uh, I just like talk with uh, one of the very senior uh, Indonesian exile in Germany. And I say that, shall we, shall we give him <laughs> like a chance? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then um, I just like introduce like uh, some source, I think very important in, in, uh, in the beginning of the research of his book and then he can continue after that mm-hmm. so there is like a lot of like screening actually I didn't give it easily like I know exactly like I know if I help him like if you, I want the book also like I, I think I told Vincent that I really want that if you write a story about 1965 think about the victim because it's the victim is like the story is not you, but the victim. Right. So yeah, so that's what happened. How did you um, find out about uh, Fabriana, Vincent? Oh no, I mean everybody knew. I mean everybody knows uh, who Fabriana is. Um, so when I when I got there, she was. I mean, I guess uh, through social media and just the community of, of journalists working in in Jakarta, she's a major figure, and she had a you know she had a an organization called, you know, remember 65. So she was absolutely somebody that, um, that was a clear sort of, um, you know, she was a, a, a road to any kind of work you want to do on this. And I'll, I should add quickly, I mean, like Fabriana has a very coherent critique of international journalism in, in Southeast Asia and the global South. And I think it's basically, 100% right. I think sometimes we have the, the the tiniest of disagreements, but I mean, it is absolutely right to be suspicious of a of a white American man that shows up in Jakarta. Like, so if I had written this book just based on sort of declassified files um, and sort of what was in the public sphere, 
it would have taken me much less time. I, I took a, a lot of time slowly trying to meet the people that really cared about this, convince them that what I was doing was good. And then they introduced me to the next level of people who introduced me to the next level of people, which allowed me to actually base the, the story around the, the survivors. And um, it, it was important to me that, <laughs> that the people who really cared told me that it's, you know, that it's worthwhile. If, 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 if everyone had said, stop, don't do this, you know, that would have been an entirely different issue. So there was a very, you know, so February was one of the very first people that said, okay, we'll see how, what you're going to do. I'll introduce you to this person, this person, this person. And I kept going slowly and slowly and slowly. Eventually, I think a full year after this conversation, she just described moving to solo for a while and just like living near a lot of the survivors and explaining to them all of the, um, all of them, what I was doing and just so slowly get to know who actually really wanted to be a part of this. And, you know, because people like Bhaskar Wardaya or Winarso who runs the, the survivors organization in solo, because they kept saying, yes, 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 keep going, keep going. I felt a lot more confident um, doing it. But yeah, but she was, she was a huge, huge, like bridge to cross. I mean, not, not like it was, you know, thought about in that terms, but in, in, in retrospect, she made a lot of the initial research poss possible and, and introduced me to a lot of people, which as she rightly points out, foreign correspondents should not be awarded automatically. <laughs> like just because somebody shows up and says, oh, I'm doing this. Like there's mm -hmm. very, very I mean, especially, I mean, I mean, we could talk about like the politics of foreign correspondents for the whole time if we, we needed, but coming from South America to Southeast Asia, it was very, I was very disillusioned with the process. I mean, in South America, the, the, the role of a correspondent is a little bit different. And in Southeast Asia, I saw a lot of things that are really not uh, encouraging. I mean, there's a lot of times that uh, I thought, like, what is even the point of having Western, mm -hmm. Western press out here? There's, the relationship is, I mean, I, I say this often sometimes that the Jakarta method is not only about the formation of a neo-colonial global order, it is also published into one. Right. So, I, so I'm also a part of this story, right? Like the fact that a book that comes out in New York um, will make a bigger splash than one that comes out in, you know, uh, 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 let's say, you know, Cambodia is, a, is, is related to the things in the book. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the situation for, 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 for Western journalism in Southeast Asia, I think really justifies the skepticism that Febriana just described. I'm really just interested. Yeah, because there's on one hand, there's this idea of like, well, you've got Western journalists, they're just going to push the imperialist agenda. They could be working for the CIA. Yeah. <laughs> like, we don't know. You know, there's that part of it. And then there's the other element of it, which is, I think, Fabriana, if you could talk about this too, your own experience about speaking publicly about 1965 and the consequences to your life and career. If you could expand on that and why people would be very hesitant to talk about these, uh, this uh, event. Yeah, it costs everything um, when you write about 1965. Uh, I lost my job. So I lost my job and it's very traumatic even until today I try to cope with that trauma. Um, so we are dealing with the very powerful Indonesian military, right? And then um, they have like, um, I mean, like people everywhere, like in, including like no one of the president like can ignore that power, even like Jokowi. 
So for a journalist, I I saw like I realized that not so many journalists wrote about that, but that there there was an event the um, International People Tribunal in The Hague in nine, um, 2015 that it changed everything. At first, like I felt conflicted because my family was part of the story. Then uh, I was thinking that I think like every Indonesian is part of the story. I shouldn't feel like conflicted with that because can you imagine like one million people uh, killed and then yeah yeah we don't amount. even know that yeah yeah maybe like the 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 number is bigger so every single Indonesian is actually have a story about their family getting kidnapped or killed. Uh, like first example my uh, with my family so i think that um i convinced myself myself at that time i shouldn't be afraid to write about it and feel conflicted because every indonesian is part of story so not only me so then i report about that story and then i broke the news and then i think like my article was getting went viral um until like the retired military general who got involved on that operation came to me and said to me, like, I don't like your article. I don't like everything that I did. <laughs> he came to me and then I got intimidated by the Islamic Defender Front and then my office didn't defend me. And then I was depressed because my family said they were afraid and they uh asked me to stop being journalist which is that's like the biggest the biggest uh thing that make me depressed because it it's family should like mm-hmm. support me and it's very hard so it's 2016 i experienced so i think like it's before i met Vincent. so 2016 i experienced like a very like i attempt to suicide that's what i happened so it's it's really like so when why I didn't be replay or email also Vincent because I trying to um, cope with my mental health issue as well after I lost my job I don't trust anyone I had a trust issue like this foreign journalist emailed me talking about 1965 it's very traumatic. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very traumatic. So I try to like get myself together. So that's like the cost. Uh, that I have to pay for writing the story and even actually when I write the story and I wrote the story when I wrote about the International People Tribunal and I hear I heard all the testimony I was crying I was crying Mm -hmm. I was crying because I imagine my grandfather and the other family member and even like when I read Vincent book so I promise to finish it before this. I can't because I keep crying when I read it. Even like in, in introduction, I can't stand reading this book. Yeah. I can't. I cannot finish it like that fast because it's just heartbreaking story. I, I still feel that it's very emotional reading that book for me. Like I cannot even like I'm reading the introduction and it's already make me cry. Like, oh my God, I, I understand how... I mean, like, it's very difficult. And I read another chapter and, oh my God, there's a, a story about the survivor, which is I always imagine my family when I read that book. 
That's such a good point. Like, um, I mean, it's called the Jakarta Method. It's about the CIA and everything. But I also found this book very emotional. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was emotional on so many levels. Like, yes, you're talking about the survivors. You're talking about the consequences of these horrific events. And also, it is the other thing that um, was moving to me and really uh, was just this idea of like, oh, you've been gaslit your entire life. Mm -hmm. And then a book comes along and is like, hello, <laughs> actually, you're not crazy. <laughs> These things did happen. Um, and the yeah. CIA and where Washington um, was part of it. So, yeah, that's a, it's amazing. Um, the other thing, too, is I like reading your articles that you um, sent us in. We, we got them Google translated. And it's just the symposium was supposed to be about why did 1965 happened and the fact that you did the reporting on it and then lost your job mm. um just the irony of that situation and the um i did want to think like you were saying you didn't think that it would have those effects though writing that that article at all yeah um yeah so uh the bravery of it nevertheless so thank you for that um and at the date, no one published that story. So, so many <clears throat> journalists in that symposium building and only me published that story. I didn't know what happened in the newsroom across the country, but no one published that story, only me. So it's crazy. Wow. And you didn't know that it was going to have those consequences. So Yeah, and I, I suggest like, I mean, like I predict, like, I don't know, maybe there was a self-censorship in the mm -hmm. newsroom. So I'm not sure, but there's only me, like so many like dozen journalists there in the press conference and it's only me published that story. And after like I got, I got the intimidation and then it went viral and then other media report about my intimidation, which is mm -hmm. like not, not the core of the story. The story mm -hmm. is about the symposium, right. like this group of Islam militant, Islamist militant with the retired general trying to like, uh, trying to like show their power that uh, so it's actually like the re response to the um uh international people tribunal so that group like uh, uh they like initiate this symposium they are trying to <laughs> tell the indonesian people no it's not right like indonesian is not guilt indonesia is not guilty because this the international people tribunal uh, the verdict say that Indonesia is guilty. Did you um, you you're talking about kind of the the domestic reaction to um to your article and how the domestic media um handled the situation? Do you 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 also have views on how you were treated by the foreign media and as um people in the UK and um I guess uh the podcast will go out to people you know in the English speaking world um what was your view on what what kind of shaped your suspicion of 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 foreign media or you did touch on it but maybe you could just um talk a little bit more about that uh in general foreign media in general <laughs> yeah, or specific, um, or specific experiences like it's what? Up to what you, how much did you did you think that they had? Did, did you think they had agendas, or or did you think that they were trying to get sound bites from you, and take to take them out of context, or or did you just have a general kind of feeling of? of... Uh, in my own experience, mm -hmm. 
my editor really rely on me. So if I say that this is, yeah, you can go with this. So it, it's not going to happen because they don't know anything about Indonesia. So they rely on me. So when mm -hmm. I say that this is, we need to revise this. So I don't think that personally I experienced that because they, are, they know that I'm like very expertise on my own country. And I also like I'm going, I'm like, I always like uh, speak everything that I, I feel that this is wrong. Like this article is wrong. Like for example, the virginity test, the last, the, the one of the Indonesian journals say that, that there will be no virginity test in Indonesia. Uh, for, for the, the military, for the, military yeah, yeah. the fact that there is no uh, institutional statement so there is no statement for, from the institution of the Indonesian military but I think he just used it to like promote his own career as I don't know he want to run as a president so I don't know uh, so I think like I give my opinion to my editor we have to be careful careful Okay. Next, next time. But I don't know, like the other journalists. But like what I told you, like many foreign journalists is trying to take advantage of local journalists. It's happened to me, uh, and even I don't get paid, and I so many mm. story, and also I got mm. mansplained. But newsroom, I, I I work with so many great editor, and mostly from the UK. Mostly from the UK, so they, yeah, yeah, they they really respect me, but not in my case. I don't think I experienced that, but I don't know other journalists. Yeah, and to just give a little more detail on that is that uh, Fabriana has, has written for the Guardian, so apparently the editor at the Guardian is not as horrible as me and Wei thought. <laughs> we no, sometimes have beef with the guardian yeah i i have i have like one editor but i cannot tell it's not professional mm. i know some editor are very racist mm. they only give uh the art uh, the the assignment to the native speaker mm -hmm. journalist right inside to me even talk i know a lot about like for example west papua but they gave it to the journalist in uk and the way that they uh, pick the angle of the story usually like a uh, very bombastic, but mm. not actually necessary for Indonesia. <laughs> so that's actually uh, some of the article. I think it's for clickbait, not for like necessary for like, this is what actually the journalist matter for the journalism matter. No, but yeah, it's happened for, for like some foreign media. They just want like some clickbait and bombastic. And then, yeah, I think like, I don't think it's necessary. So sometimes I feel like so weird something if my editor asked me to write about it. So I personally will refuse to do that. And I say, okay, you can assign, but not me. Mm -hmm. And I don't need the money as well. Mm -hmm. So that's what I always like, um, Always say to my editor if I don't feel comfortable. Always, always say to them. So I don't have a problem with that. I just like refuse to do that. Okay. Amazing. So, um, do you have any such dilemmas, <laughs> Vincent? I mean, I know you've written for the LA Times, for fi the Financial Times, and the Washington Post. Um, and now I think in the US, basically, the distrust for mainstream media is like at an all time high. Right. And probably rightly so, because of a lot of the 
um, well, a lot of the reporting is more like uh, state reporting, I guess, like uh, it seems like, but it's not across the board, right? I'm assuming your, your, your work with these, um, well, anyway. No, I mean, better uh, your experience and your thoughts on that. The dynamics that Fabriana described are all present and they're all much worse than they were when I started. I mean, I'm not that old, but um, I started in international journalism, I guess, 2007, 2008, and everything's worse. So I, I mean, I'm not going to say which publications, which editors, but I have definitely lists of people that I will never work with again, because mm. they prioritized a headline that is clickbaity over what I know to be the story. Um, they ask you to do work and then disappear. Um, the, again, this could be an entire conversation, but the economics of international journalism are headed very much in the wrong direction. And they have been, um, uh, for a long time. And what that means is not enough people in offices in, in New York and, and London are kind of deciding in advance what the story is, right? Because they don't have, they don't have yeah. the money or resources to, to employ someone like Fabriana full time, you know, like ideally that you, you would have somebody that is, that it is their job to tell you what's happening in Indonesia. Um, what happens more often these days is somebody in New York already knows what they think the story is. They find somebody on the ground Sometimes it's local. Sometimes it's like a rich kid from like that went to Oxford. That's kind of like having a gap, like a lot of foreign correspondents now. It's kind of like a modern way to do a gap year is you. Oh my you... God, it's true. <laughs> no. As long as you graduate from Oxford, everything yeah. will be small. <laughs> yeah, oh my get, god because it used to be okay we have a veteran who's been in the field for 10 years he speaks indonesian and portuguese river and i was uh -huh. like okay here's a 22 year old whose parents are really paying for them to go live in whatever kuala lumpur and they just kind of want to get their name in the guardian once <laughs> and then their name in this place once and then they're going to go back to london and work at a consultancy or like whatever join the yeah, local yeah, part. Yeah, yeah. and like um and that all has to do with the economics of, 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 of the, of the production of news and the production of knowledge, right? Like, I mean, I worked at the guardian and I worked at the guardian offices, mm -hmm. um, 10 years ago, 2009 and 10. And, um, I won't say too much. What I think is like, you know, undisputable is that there's mm -hmm. less, less people for the same amount of work. And, when you have parts of the world that are so complex and so unknown, like Indonesia is, right? Like the average American comes to, like we were discussing before the recording started, the average American, you t tell them you're writing about Indonesia, they go, hey, well, what, Polynesia, Micronesia? When you're dealing with a country that is totally unknown, you really need to take the time to have a, someone on the ground, like explain from the beginning the story. And when you're trying to produce, put out 20, 20 pieces of news a day, you know, um, all of it, which are designed to generate maximum clicks, you just you just will not do a good job. And then you end up relying more and more on freelancers. You pay them less and less. Um, you don't have somebody on the ground like Fabriana is describing to say to the editor, no, no, this is really what the story is. It's not what you think. It's not what you saw on the internet. This is really what it is. Mm. And the less we have of that, the, the more of a one-dimensional view of the whole world we have, which is basically dictated by the ideological priors of middle management in, in newsrooms in New York and London. Mm. So you think it's less... Sorry, go ahead. And remember when Trump was president, it's uh, all this story, all, like almost all about Trump. And I was just like so upset because, oh my God, Trump is everywhere and everything. <laughs> like, even like 
Oh my god, there is like a story about the Trump hotel, like whatever, or, or like whatever related to Trump speak in my headline. I think like, oh my god, there is so many stories in Indonesia and also like not only Trump, like every single thing about Trump is headlined in like American media. And I think, yeah, it's important, but like there are so many stories like environmental disaster in my country, climate change people. But like they don't really <laughs> prioritize that, and I was so upset because when my editor said, "Trump, do you want to write?" On? No, I don't want. I don't know anything about Trump in Indonesia. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I to write about Trump. <laughs> no, well, they found a way. I mean, this was. I mean, I don't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna name publications or editors or whatever. But oh, when I got obsessed to, with Trump. Yeah, when I got to Southeast Asia in 2017, it was like everything that they wanted me to write about. Certain people, certain publications won't say who. It, it was really supposed to be about Trump, really, like whether even if it was something in the southern Philippines, it was really like, well, isn't this done, being done by Duterte, who's a bad guy in the same way that Trump is a bad guy? Mm. Everything, everything yeah. was oh really just about the Trump yeah. issue. You could, yeah. you could never yeah. tell a story on its own on its own terms. And I was just like, what are we doing out here? Like, what's the point? But yeah, I, I, so I just want to, yeah, I'm disagreeing with Fabriano. Now Trump's not president anymore. It, it's it's so yeah. great that all the world's problems have just disappeared. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. America's back. America's yeah. good again. Mm -hmm. You can just close your eyes. America's and... back in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Kamala Harris is. Did you see? You see Kamala Harris put flowers down at the uh, what she believed to be the memorial of John McCain, but it was actually a statue dedicated to the Vietnamese uh, <laughs> that shot him down. <laughs> oh, God. oh God! It's just typical. Yes. Yeah. It's just typical American. Oh you, go, you go around the world and you assume everything is about how you're good <laughs> without realizing that without realizing that the other side of this conflict has its own narratives. Oh my God. Who, who is the fixer that we need to talk with the fixer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and high five really... them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, someone is out to get Kamala. <laughs> yeah, they set her up. Oh, Amazing. I think, yeah, I think that actually, I think... <laughs> I think that actually is true within Washington, but uh, it's a separate issue. I think Kamala doesn't have a lot of friends, but yeah. Um, yeah. Everything, everything ends up being about yourself. I mean, this is a, this is human nature anyways, right? Humans, humans are always going to, whatever they see, they're going to be thinking about themselves first. That's just a, that's just the flaw of, 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 of our species. And so when you have everything dictated from newsrooms in, in the North Atlantic, uh, then everything just ends up being about the North Atlantic, even if it's, theoretically happening on the ground in Myanmar. So you're um, kind of suggesting, and I suppose it might be like 50% of this or half, you know, like this, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but that it's kind of like a little bit of like lack of resources, time crunching, clickbait, economic reasons. Right. Um, and then the other reasoning that I think is, um, and tell me if I'm like far off base, what your thoughts are on this, like basically, what is covered in the book the sort of agenda of washington in the book you know mm. is still sort of ongoing but they're mm -hmm. sort of pivoting their messaging towards um well i mean it's always been china but now there are different factors involved in mm -hmm. that messaging um yeah so tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that and how it how it's sort of evolving mm -hmm. um yeah yeah. So as I said, one of the, what I do in the book often is just kind of rely on the real experts and then put things together in a global um, way. And there's this one, one very good um, uh, historian of the Cold War at Harvard, I believe, uh, Adarn Vestad. Um, and what he says is, if you look at the history of the United States, this is a country that has been engaged in aggressive 
expansionist militarism at every single point in its history. So it happened to be that in the Cold War between 1945 and 1990, communism was the big bad enemy. Um, before that, it was often black or indigenous, uh, you know, it was indigenous people in the United States. It was, it was Philippines, it was Cuba, uh, it was Central America. Um, and in the post 9-11 era, just kind of the war on terror, you know, uh, uh, Muslim terrorism just got slotted into the same um, enemy grouping that, uh, um, that, the, the, that the communists have put in the Cold War. And I think probably the next one is China. I think we're, we're seeing a, re, a, re, um, uh, a reorganization of forces to, to, to really focus energies on China. And again, like it's the same people, it's the same, mm-hmm. or, it's the same institutions, right? Like one thing I always try to um, underline about the Cold War is that like, if you look at the, the um, people, uh, the, the states and institutions which carried out really re- very real human rights abuses in, in the communist world, at the very least, they don't exist anymore, right? Mm-hmm. In the case of the United States, it's the exact same institutions, the CIA, the State Department, the same media. It's like, there's a direct line from the things that I'm speaking about the book to the, the people that will be um, prosecuting a Cold War against China. Now, to the answer, what I think is the other sort of part of the question is like, how do these things evolve? I think if you look at the 50s and 60s, um, the period that I look at uh, most closely in the book, the United States is kind of like a young and bumbling imperialist. Like they're just, they're, they're, they're very like, they have a lot of money, but they don't have a lot of nuance or subtlety. So the way that they do things is they show up with a lot of money and they try to bribe the military to do this or that. They try to buy an election. They try to bomb things. Um, it's very clumsy. Mm. Um, you know, in, in the sixties, you know, the very, the classic military coup involved literally tanks rolling into the Capitol and, and expelling the elected leader. And then it's very obvious what's happening in the decades since things are a little bit more subtle. Um, often you see the, the, the use of, judicial or parliamentary or media assaults in the uh in support of whatever regime change operation that that you're um uh trying to carry out so if you look at the the case of bolivia 2019 to 2021 this is a real case in which you can see the jakarta method reproduced but also in a more mature form right Mm -hmm. like you have very classically a uh a leftist government which has been very popular over its uh rule in bolivia um, but, and then is eventually overthrown with the use of the military, but it isn't just so clear that the military says we're doing a coup, right? There's this, there's this, there's this constellation of, of, of forces, which are clouding the scene saying, okay, well, there was electoral irregularities. Okay. Uh, there's protests. Okay. Um, he's overstepped his bounds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very hard for people that only know the history of the seventies to, or, that don't know the history of the seventies rather very well to recognize, Oh no, this is a coup just because they say that there's problems doesn't mean it's not a coup. Mm -hmm. And then we just got a report a couple weeks ago that finally, you know, all of the most conservative and, and sort of, you know, establishment, uh, um, organizations recognize that this regime that was in power from 2019 to 21 carried out uh, torture, torture and execution of, of political, prisoners or sorry of, of, of its political opponents so while they didn't do it you know the coup took place in a different way than it would have in the 70s you still have the same dynamics at work you still have a state mm. department which is going to be more likely to look the other way if, if you have a leftist um, um being removed from power 
and you have uh, the justification of, of of human rights abuses if you're if you're if you're taking care of quote unquote like radical dangerous elements, you know, mm-hmm. in this case, in, often just indigenous people in Bolivia. Um, but it's kind of in its more mature form. The United States as a hegemon is more is more confident now, and it's developed a um, a very wide array of tools in the period it, since it kind of took over the world at the end of World War II. Scary, so scary. Um, yeah, um, Fabriana, I was watching your um, documentary with my parents, and we loved it. Um, our mother's land. Yes. Yeah. Our mother. And a lot of the women um, who were um, who you were interviewing in, in this documentary, they were talking about capital and 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 how they see the fight as them versus capital i was wondering if you could um give us your take on that and and um and then a little because i'm this is the the stuff about the media and the media bias and also um how this plays out on a global scale and how the u.s protects its interests um and it, it capital basically um also plays out on a domestic um stage in your documentary yeah i think my documentary trying to give a voice to the like uh, vulnerable communities or like these voiceless people or communities, which is like the woman that I think like uh, they get like less coverage uh, from the uh, Indonesian media because usually when you cover a story, you only focus like for example, protests against uh, the giant uh, company like palm oil, they only focus in a group, but they didn't tell like the detail, what, what is the impact to the uh, this vulnerable community, women and children. So I try to like give a voice to this woman in, in my uh, documentary and even like uh, put them as the heroines which is like this in the spotlight that even the woman like uh, they 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 are in the front line until to this day. So um so um I don't know uh your question is about related with the US something. Oh, I can't remember, but yeah, well, it just made me think I of think, it. Yeah. Yeah, because basically yeah. what struck me from your documentary was essentially this happens in Malaysia as well. I mean, it happens all over the world. Is um corporations come in to oh, yeah. Um, areas, yeah. yeah. So I think, oh yeah, it's still it's still related to uh, what happened during 1965. So mm-hmm. actually uh, under the Sukarno regime, uh, we have these agrarian reforms um, initiated by the father of uh, one of the senior Indonesian exile that I introduced first to Vincent. Mm-hmm. We, we have to keep her name in secret because uh, she didn't want um, to get this any spotlight. So, so this uh, his name is a vice of the chairman of the Indonesian Communist Party initiated agrarian mm-hmm. uh, reform. So it's like the first uh, concept to balance, not to balance actually. Yeah, you know, yeah, the concept of communism that uh, we don't want to be con- we don't want our nature to be controlled by mm-hmm. the uh, corporation so when the suharto suharto coup sukarno then that's like the first uh, 
the the early year when the corporation have like such a great access to all mm. this in the nature is because we are very rich so for like 32 years uh, so under the Suharto regimes this corporation like built this empire <laughs> in Indonesia mm-hmm. which is exploit all the nature so this my documentary also still related to that that I, but I, I cannot tell to the audience actually that it's related to what happened like Sukarno Kobe mm-hmm. Suharto it's just too complicated but some of the story to took place in it's happened like bit and uh, it's still like in before the Suharto fall right like for example the one in Sulawesi but all these corporations actually settled uh, 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 during the Suharto um, uh, administration so this is this like after after the reformation so this woman is trying to um, I think I like, organize a movement against um, this corporation and it's still happening until today. Mm. I feel like even took Suharto fell, but the I think like I think the new we can still feel like the prison of the new order through this corporation and company, Indonesian military working with the corporation or palm oil plantation or like coal company is still happening until today. So that's like the legacy of Suharto. I mean, and really to go back to the book, it just seems like if a country doesn't fall in line, does not actually fall in line with capitalist corporate interests, if they do decide to go towards more socialist, progressive, no, these terms sometimes don't mean anything anymore, but sort of like more egalitarian type of um, systems, the U.S. is going to come in and dismantle your democracy. I mean, that is that a fair assessment of what's going to happen? So, um, yes. I mean, in, in we could break down exactly like, you know, the various components. But I think land reform, as Fabriano points to, is really a big one. I mean, if you step back and take a look at all of the regime change operations, coups, things like this that happened in the 20th century, the the best predictor of them one happening, or if you like, if you really want the United States to come and mess with you, land reform tends to be a theme that runs throughout this. I mean, land reform was an issue in Guatemala in 1954, Mm -hmm. Indonesia 1965, Brazil 1964. Um, And so you, you say that, you know, if you don't get in line, there's a very interesting distinction between the countries that really do have to get in line and and the rare exceptions where you're kind of allowed to break those rules. Now, if you look at the countries, the rare examples of the countries that actually did move from being maybe the so-called third world countries to first world countries, they were given exceptions to these rules. So like, for example, when the United States comes to your country and the United States is like actually running your economy and they want you to succeed, they will do land reform. So like mm-hmm. South Korea is a really good example of a country that operated outside of the rules, which I think applied to most of the rest of the global South, um, went from being a very poor country after World War II to now one of the richest countries in the world. Again, Japan, the United States pushed through land reform when the United States was running that country. However, if you try it in a country where the process is going to threaten U.S. corporations or the process is going to be perceived as inimical 
to mm-hmm. the construction of the US-led capitalist order, then you could be in real trouble. So you have this, this bizarre thing where if you try to do something in Guatemala that the United States actually did in South Korea, mm-hmm. you're going to be branded as a communist or, or um, as an enemy of the global order. And, and again, that makes sense because you are an enemy of the global order. Mm-hmm. Over from the, In the period from 1945 to, 19, to 2000, you see the slow or a deliberate construction of a U.S.-led capitalist order. And one of the most important rules of that game is that um, property rights should be global. So if you have U.S. companies or European companies that are operating uh, in your territory, by insisting on your sovereign right to control your resources in your country, as the leader in Iran did, uh, a leadership in Iran did in 1953, or Indonesia did in the mid-60s, or Guatemala in 1954, you are kind of breaking the rules. And then, you know, when you break the rules, there's all kinds of um, punishments, and they'll, they'll start off um, with smaller things, but then they'll build up to the worst things if, if those things don't work. I think that's another thing that Americans have a hard time understanding when I talk about a U.S.-backed mass murder of between a half a million and a million people. Um, you do, there is kind of a, uh, how do we put this, like a a process of 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 of, of starting with with the more let's say moderate punishments or the more um, low level sort of um, uh, 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 the things that are supposed to stop you right. So in, in, in Indonesia, 1955, they 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 start uh, bribing right wing Muslim parties. That doesn't work. They try to foment and participate in the civil war. That doesn't work. It's only when they when when things get really really um, um, uh, 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 hot that they turn to these more extreme measures. But yeah, I mean, I think that you did see the construction of a, let's call it a rules-based liberal order from 1945 to 2000, mm-hmm. except that some of those rules are you cannot infringe on property rights uh, mm-hmm. of, 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 <laughs> of, of investors in the global north. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and, can and- you explain land reform to me? Fabriana, <laughs> do you want to explain the, the Indonesian land reform or should? Oh, yes. it's very complicated. I oh, think no. <laughs> there was a rule that you cannot own a land more than five hectares. It's like 5,000 meters. Yeah, yeah, five, five we, have, we have hectares. Yeah. 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 So most of the uh, owner of the land that uh, access to five hectare is like a Muslim cleric in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. I think that's like when it started the anti-communist sentiment. So Islam yeah. is anti-communist. Mm. So I have an argument with Islamic Defender Front on Twitter before I delete it. I say <laughs> that because they accuse me as anti-Islam. I say, mm. hey, Haji Misbah is a Muslim and he is the member of Communist Party. Don't mm-hmm. you say that? Yeah. In, in the communist party is like in the islam so don't try to get the audience lost with that so indonesian communist party is not anti-islam and maybe just to take a bit step back globally like where in the other places in the broadest terms like uh land reform is about mus- moving from feudal to capitalist property mm-hmm. relations right so in marxist terms um yeah, that would you know, be feudalism capitalism but even like you know liberal and everybody kind of agreed on this. And, and, and basically in a lot of the global South uh, um, and even Europe, if you look back, it used to be that land was held by one person or one family that would have a huge um, uh, uh, um, piece of land that they would often um, quite inefficiently um, farm on. And then they would extract rents from peasants, right? So like, 
this was the classic thing with with Mao and the landlords in China. The landlords would just have a huge amount of land. Everyone was would be forced to work for them, hand um, uh, surplus off to to the the feudal landlord. Mm-hmm. In in Brazil, th- these were often literally feudal. You know, people. You know, uh, people that were given their their land by the the empire the portuguese crown right so in 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 britain you had to do this too you had to get you know land out of the hands of giant unproductive feudal lords and then give it to break it up into smaller pieces that it'll Mm -hmm. be it'll be operated on uh, along capitalist lines the idea being when you have people actually owning their own land working on it for their own profits it's going to be not only fair to them but much more uh, efficient for the production of capitalism so a lot of these leaders that were trying to carry out land reform, they were explicitly trying to develop capitalist property relations. This was, this was not like the first step necessarily on the way to communism. Um, although, of course, in, in both China and Vietnam, you had very bloody land reform policies. But yeah, I mean, Brazil, this, you know, a lot of my work in Brazil is about the fact that this didn't happen. A huge, like hmm. the exploitation of the Amazon to this day has a lot to do with these still existing feudal property relations that the 19, that the, the land reform of the 1960s did not resolve because it was stopped in its tracks by chopped in its tracks by U.S. backed coup. So in both Indonesia and Brazil, environmental uh, issues are related to this sort of unresolved question uh, uh, of land reform. I heard you tell the story about how the CIA. Um, sort of started a little bit like frat boys <laughs> oh yeah yeah. <laughs> and now so um i would love you to like tell that story about um some of the examples of that but also how the cia is now evolved into this like woke cia <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that we're seeing now <laughs> well that 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 line is actually more direct than it might appear at first glance so um the cia was founded just after world war ii um the united states the united states came out of that war being by far the most powerful country in the world and in human history, but they didn't really have the overseas covert, covert operators that the British and Russians had during their era of empire. They were new to what I would call imperialism. So they founded um, the CIA and the, the these men almost ex- exclusively came from the ranks of what we would call the blue bloods in the United States. Like the closest thing we have to an aristocracy in the U S they all went to boarding schools. Um, these, they all were part of these like private, like, uh, super secret organizations like skull and bones they all went to yale they all knew each other they grew up with each other they were all in fraternities together they were usually protestant like hyper elite and um contrary to what some people might think about the cia they were by their by the standards of their time liberal and cosmopolitan they were not like the knuckle dragging conservatives of the south they believed themselves to be very sophisticated and open-minded and they really believed in sort of you know they were (laughs) They were, you know, they came from the Ivy League. They were, mm-hmm. they were, they thought that they were really sort of intellectually uh, 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 mature and global. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so they were, on the one hand, they were absolutely frat boys. And you can see this in the way that they acted in the 50s and 60s. They got really drunk all the time. They kind <laughs> of treated, <laughs> they would have these crazy parties when they would like literally fall down and do insane things. But they also kind of treated their the world as if it was like 
a rowing competition at school, mm-hmm. right? They were really like believed in meritocracy. They believed that they were going to do a good job. We're going to get them, right? This deeply American, especially American elite idea that like, you know, I'm going to go out there and show them that I'm good. And um, they did this with a lot of money with absolutely no consequences and often lubricated with a bunch of alcohol. Um, <laughs> I mean, and dis- British actually. <laughs> well, no, but this, so this is, this, they, a lot of them went to the kinds of American high schools that were trying to be the uh, Eton College of the United States. So like they all were like from, they all went to boarding schools that were based on the, the boarding schools of, uh, of England, right? Like they, they all like really looked up to Eton and Etonians and MI6. And very disturbingly, they thought James Bond was really cool as like, <laughs> as like a piece of fiction. And like, you know, they, they really like, and they had, they had this weird, they had a weird inferiority complex towards MI6. They knew, they saw MI6 as like the even more like um, elegant and sophisticated uh, 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 defenders of Western civilization on wow. the front lines of empire or whatever, right? And so they, they often had, there was this weird, there was often this weird, um interplay where the, the u.s had all the money yeah it, well the u.s had all the money but the MA, mi6 really know what they were doing so the mi6 would kind of mi6 really pushed the cia into backing the coup in iran in 1953 um uh-huh. because the mi6 couldn't get it done on their own it was really initially about iranian uh control of oil that was supposed to be in the minds of mi6 controlled by britain Mm-hmm. And they and they turned to the Americans, knowing what Americans cared about. And like, well, did you also know that these Iranians might become communists? And have you thought about that? Has anybody <laughs> told you that? And that got like the you know the mm. the the red blooded Americans all excited about this uh, this this coup that they were going to back. So, yeah, from the beginning, it was young men that were deeply American and deeply a Protestant, but they thought them, thought of themselves as worldly and sophisticated. Now. This kind of all makes sense when you see these recent videos about like, you know, uh, uh, the CIA is an intersectional gay friend, you know, uh, gay, um, welcoming, uh, multiracial entity is that they still get their people from the best universities in the United States. Whatever Mm -hmm. the ideology is on college campuses, that's kind of going to be their ideology, too. It's going to merge with this very much. concrete material need to further the interests of the United States wherever they are, but they're going to get the same types of people (laughs) that you would meet at a party if you were on the campus of Yale or Harvard or Berkeley or whatever. I mean, I went to Berkeley um, for undergraduate, one of the more like, you know, liberal or left even schools in the U.S. and the CIA was definitely recruiting on our campus. And um, Yeah. yeah, I mean, the CIA, that's where they come from. It's, it come, it's the, self-conscious elites uh of the u.s ruling class that you know they don't like to think of themselves as as like um hicks in the south Mm -hmm. they like to think of themselves as you know you know dancing the waltz in some vienna uh ballroom and trading secrets with the soviets even though really at the beginning they had no idea what they were doing they were basically just powered by huge amounts of money and the fact that they would never get in trouble because they had the u.s government behind them that's a great aesthetic yeah, <laughs> and um, can you just relate that story about the sex tape that they made? Yes, I want to know about the sex that. tape. Yeah, so this is again, like as I <laughs> as I mentioned, like they didn't understand the world at all, but they had unlimited resources, and they could never get in trouble. 
right? So after 1955, when the United States started uh, funneling money to the right wing uh, or, you know, conservative Muslim party in Indonesia, and that failed, they started looking for other ways to bring down Sukarno, Indonesia's first president and uh, leader of the third world movement. Um, They discussed assassinating him. That's a classic that's a classic thing you can do. They even went as far, according to declassified files, as selecting the person that would carry out the assassination. But they also went to their friends in Hollywood to try to assassinate his character. Um, if you know, like, classic Christmas songs in America, the, you know, the singer named Bing Crosby. Mm. Well, Bing Crosby had a production company in Los Angeles. The CIA went to him via a fixer that worked for Howard Hunt and said, we need to produce a sex tape that's going to portray Sukarno sleeping with a white Russian blonde woman that we're (laughs) going to say is from the KGB. And Bing Crosby said, of course, because back back then the CIA was seen as like this patriotic force. So they hired a Mexican-American from the LA like underworld (laughs) acting scene because they figured like well that's close enough right like Mexicans look Mexicans look kind (laughs) of like Asians I know yeah yeah Yeah, a brown brown person (laughs) they put him in a bald cap because they wanted to in addition to portraying Sukarno as you know um, promiscuous and uh, uh, controlled by the KGB they wanted to to show the world that he's bald, they thought that that would destroy uh. Indonesians' <laughs> respect for him. And this is very reminiscent of what happened with Fidel in the early 60s. One of the one of the CIA plots was to make his beard fall out, and they thought in this very, very racist and orientalist way, oh, well, in, down in Latin America, they really respect machismo so much so that if his beard falls out, they won't respect him anymore because he won't be a man. <laughs> so where his soul is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is, so they made, apparently they made the tape. Um uh, Bing Crosby and his Bing Crosby and his brother Larry put this together, but uh, it wasn't released apparently because it just wasn't convincing enough. But I mean, no. again, if they had, <laughs> but if they had, say. if they had it been so deeply American, yeah, and Puritan and Protestant, they would have known that everyone in Indonesia already knew that Sukarno was promiscuous and mm-hmm. had, had 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 all kinds of affairs with women. This wouldn't have shocked people the way that it would have if for example a sex tape of john f kennedy or eisenhower came out they had you know again this is this under to underline the same point they had unlimited resources mm-hmm. they could never get in trouble if they failed and they didn't really think about the actual place as a real place they thought it as part of their sort of stupid like boys club competition to see who could do a better job at fighting communism right so the story is very funny but it also isn't right i mean it's a it's a farce it could you know it's someone should make a movie about it but at the same time they're trying to destroy the reputation of the founding father of a country they don't understand at all for reasons that they don't even understand mm-hmm. and and they have they have the privilege of the, the position in world history to to be able to try to carry something like this out that is sickening i will also you've just ruined christmas for me as well <laughs> <laughs> those are i mean those are good albums the the bing crosby mm. christmas yeah. songs yeah. oh god uh <laughs> Um, so, Fabriana, do you have any sense of the reception of this book in Indonesia? I mean, you were saying it was hard for you to read it, but do you feel, um, how do, do you have any idea of like how Indonesians may have received this book? Although we kind of yeah. discussed that maybe Vincent won't be allowed in Indonesia anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think like, I think like, uh, you know, Indonesian doesn't really read um bus indonesia so um i don't ask everyone but it's there's like so funny thing like this 
book become like everyone who read this book looks like very smart, right? So I'm in Jakarta Metro right now. <laughs> so I have a I have a funny story. So this is just my impression because I've read, I have read Jakarta Metro. I have read Jakarta Metro. And I was just like, so everyone in social media, whatever. Uh, I, I, I didn't read that because I think like if I read about 1965, I have to be ready with myself like emotionally. So I have this funny story. There is like a very rich guy, like friend of my friend in front of me reading Vincent book. And then he didn't even look at me and, and he said, what are you doing? And I was just, I want to say, oh, maybe you read that book. There was my name there. The, the audience of the book is very, very like rich kids. That I think it's cool, like like very middle class. I think like middle class, upper class, even like very upper class. I don't know whether they really read that book, but I feel like <laughs> it's carrying but, around. <laughs> yeah, it's carrying around like most. But I think Indonesian is more like watching film and yeah. documentary rather than read a book. But uh, I think the audience is more sophisticated, sophisticated like academicians. Um, like a student in university who, who who like exposed to the English uh, English book, like for example, and some of them rich kids, of course, because they want they want to look smart. Yeah, because Febriana is uh, like in like the one of the first pages. I I think her is one of the uh, the people that made it possible. But um, but I think again, once more, I think I went to her for help. I think I did right, Fabriana, when I was when we were discussing the possibility of an Indonesian translation because it is happening now. Mm-hmm. But um, at first I wanted to ask her for her opinion because at first it seemed like the the translation rights were being bought by Gramedia, which is like a, a very large corporate entity in Indonesia, and the fear based on something that had happened to another author based in London, Suchen Marching, was that maybe Grimedia was going to buy it in order to not publish it, or that maybe Grimedia was going to buy it and then really censor it so that it wouldn't come out at all. So now it is being translated by a smaller left-leaning press, and they're very brave, and like they're really no, they're very good at what they're doing. So we'll see how that goes, um, how the reaction is when it actually comes out in Bahasa, because as she points out like you know there's only a small group of people that read english and yeah yeah i'm, I'm hoping because uh we need to rewrite the history of 1965 if uh, they publish this book i think it will be really helpful for us to introduce this to the like high school student uh because with my uh experience with the uh, remember 1965 my organization um we have so many audience, like the third generation, they are in uh, high school and university. So uh, we need like a book, I think, uh, that can give like um, alternative history uh, aside from the uh, school book, a history school book that actually like produced by under the Suharto regime and still the same history book until today. And I'm curious about Remember 1965. So you're, um, do you focus more on uh, kind of making an unknown history better understood? Or is it like in your film where you talk about how capitalism or capital is, is, is killing the rainforest right now? Um, actually, Remember 1965, um, uh, we focus on the third generation. So the grandchildren, and we ask them to share the story of their 
experience of the family during the 1965. So the, the first article, the first essay is actually published. It's my article, my essay, but then we have to uh, drop the article because uh, the Islamic further Front haunts me at that mm. time. So we need to erase all my uh, track in internet online, including that. So uh, we published some story from the third generation about their family experience. So that's why I convinced myself that every Indonesian is actually part of story. Mm -hmm. I don't have to feel conflicted if I report about 1965 anymore. I don't have to be afraid because I know like exactly like my grandfather. Yeah. But yeah, I think everyone has the story with their family members. So I, I convinced myself until to this day that you, you don't have to be afraid. Just talk about it. Right. What do you think the odds are, Vincent, of this book being taught in, in American schools? <laughs> oh, I mean, well, well, 100, well, on 100 percent, if we're if we if we consider like one or two schools to be enough, I've already gotten some some like college professors and high school teachers. Have, I, I like it has at least been assigned in one or two high school and college courses wow. so far, which is really great. I mean, again, like when I started writing this, like it wasn't supposed to be a big book like my publisher didn't expect it to really sell um so I was real. I mean I'm really really overcome and sort of grateful that it's somehow making a little bit of an impact but I mean to be actually like assigned as part of the curriculum I think that's impossible right? I think that would undermine the the literal point of public schooling uh, you need to form citizens that can act you know engage uh, productively in in society. And I think that, you know, telling too much of that story um, contradicts that, that role for public education, but you know, it's, it's, it's here and there already. It's already, you know, I, I spoke to one high school class. It, again, it was an elite. It was like a, one of these like New York sort of like uh, liberal. The future CIA. <laughs> maybe, maybe, they, yeah, maybe they were like, you know, training, you know, reading it to, uh, to learn how to do better. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, no. Uh, but yeah. So, so, you know, it's made a little impact, you know, and I'm really mm -hmm. like, you know, a couple of, yeah, a couple of courses in high school and, and university have assigned it. But I think long term, you have to look at the structural, mm -hmm. the structural contradictions between the formation of a, of a citizenry, which really believes in the American in myth. And yeah, or, yeah, really believes in sort of the American civic religion and, and telling too many of the stories about our past. I think we can kind of selectively tell them especially when it's really far along in the past. Okay, we can now start to talk about slavery 200 years later. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, think there's, I think there's real structural contradictions, uh, unfortunately. I mean, that does make me think of like the whole idea of declassified documents from the CIA. Right. Um, what is the time? I think in the UK, it's like 30 years or something. But what is um, the time frame in, for the CIA in the US? So in the in the CIA, it's whenever they feel like never if they if they want oh, never. But I thought so, it was so, a freedom of information. So that's the thing. So State Department basically dumps everything according to the time frame. Okay. CIA does not. So I was able to draw upon declassified State Department files for the period, and that that's what a lot of the core of the the argument of the book rests is really showing the way that the U.S. government was talking about the massacres as they happened. Mm -hmm. right. The CIA documentation from the early 60s, we do not have. Mm -hmm. Now, okay. I, ca I called them up and I asked them, but they did not tell me, right? I, <laughs> I, I tried. Uh, 
and you know, uh, predictably they didn't, they didn't, they didn't tell me, but no, so CIA, we still don't have, um, but yeah, there is, there is a kind of a dynamic in which in the West, we, we allow enough, enough truth to be told that everyone can feel free without the average person really getting a sense of the, of the, of the full nature of us empire. And like, you know, um, so yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's really amazing. The, I mean, no, but Bradley Simpson, the historian did really the heroic work of going through all of the declassified files in Washington and getting, you know, building the, the story out of that. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, that that's really amazing. On the other hand, again, there are structural factors where if something is really, really explosive, they, they have ways to keep it, keep it under wraps if they need to. Or, well, I mean, like the Afghanistan papers right. that were released and then didn't really make any sort of impact. Right. So I guess that's one way of just making it disappear and, and appear to be transparent or... Well, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say to what extent these structures are intentionally created or if they just kind of evolve over time. But I think you do have a system uh, in the U.S. of the reproduction of, uh, 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 of sort of consent among most of the population that exists alongside this small group of people that has always, you know, since the middle of the 20th century, we've been reading sort of more dissident or anti-imperialist or anti-CIA literature. And it's small enough that it's not a big deal. Mm. Um, and you can kind of have both. Um, and whether or not that was on purpose, it does work out, I think, fairly well that, you know, on the one hand, you can let you can let people like me and, you know, a few thousand uh, 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 people that buy a book like this have their fun, like learning all the secrets. But, you know, the vast majority of people are still going to just uncritically. Well, not uncritically, but they're just they don't have the time really to, mm. to unlearn and relearn um, the nature of us foreign policy over the last, last century. They kind of, you know, they get the, 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 the official version. Uh, that was going to be kind of my question as well. Like you, you see um, we have kind of movements around identity politics, um, black lives matter um, and um, increased rights for LGBT people. Um, and then also you have kind of um, slightly, you know, radical left movements like um, like Jeremy Corbyn became quite popular. You have um, Navarra Media um, going up, Bernie Sanders, you got the Bernie bros. Um, no, do you think that pragmatic. there is a no. cultural movement um, towards kind of a wider acceptance of alternative narratives or or do you think that it's just not going to go that far like what what do you think about the time that your book is being released which is now and 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 how that's going to be received culturally yeah i think and i think you can point to material shifts that undergird um the processes that you're describing one is that the west is less powerful than it used to be so the us and the uk are in relative comp- decline uh, the U.S. is still by far the most powerful country in the world, militarily, economically, by far, but still it's in relative decline. So you get more of a uh, reflection on history when you are, are um, face-to-face with the limits of your own power. Uh, and number two, there's the internet, right? So for better or worse, I think for better and worse, you get the pro- proliferation of discourses and the pro- proliferation of of narratives um, as a result of the internet. This also leads to all kinds of insanity and people believing <laughs> complete, completely, mm-hmm. completely ridiculous things. But it 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 sort of shakes up the 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 landscape 
um, which used to be dominated largely by one or, you know, three or four corporate owned outlets. Um, so yeah, there's absolutely space for these kinds of struggles on the local level and even on the macro level to, to reclaim narratives or as Fabriano puts like, you know, write, rewrite the history of, of her country. And that will be all about, you know, Indonesians fighting within this new space, uh, um, battles over, you know, this and that uh, aspect of, of legacy. So, so yeah, the, the, I think those two things open up kind of a field for contestation and it's up to the people to, to, to fight on it. Well, that does bring me to Fabriana saying that, you know, you were talking about new younger generation are more engaged in rewriting history. Um, how do you see that? Is there a movement, do you think, that's like coming up that will be anti-imperialist and me? Yeah, I think, especially when Indonesia right now have a very serious issue with the uh, colonization in West Papua. Um, so it's easier for me to introduce the 1965 issue because it is happening right now in West Papua. So uh, the history of West Papua cannot separate from uh, what happens uh, during 1965. And remember that the first overseas company that get the contract in Indonesia to exploit the nature is Freeport, which is like the largest gold mining company based in US. So, so CIA, like uh, Ku, Ku so, uh, Sukarno, um, and then replaces it with Suharto, and Suharto signs the first contract with the overseas uh, companies with the Freeport in West Papua. So it's, 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 you can find like the connection of all these events. So it's easy uh, right now for Indonesians they especially the young generations um, especially right now like West Papua become a headline so what we introduce as a reporter or journalist that we look back at the history back in 1965 and it actually the 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 I mean like the mom the so the momentum is keep going on since the international people to tribunal and then there is like a huge, huge protest in Indonesia during 2019, the anti-racism protest, thanks to Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, is, it is still going on until today. And uh, I think like I'm very optimistic with the third generations. So I keep like writing the story about, yeah, West Papua and 1965 as well. So hoping that's more book that will help these young generations to um, I think like to understand what happens um, back then with their family during 1965. Yeah. Was there a specific event? Hopefully, uh, hopefully yeah. that uh, the, the book, like Vincent book will be out, like, I don't know, this year or next year? I'm not sure. They were, I mean, they were, they were trying to get it done by September 30th this year, but mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm curious with the uh, response from the Indonesian military. I think like usually they will ban the book first or like they will buy all the book. Well, oh. <laughs> well, let's hope it's the latter, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I work with Tempo. I work with Tempo before I uh -huh. become a French journalist. So every time Tempo publish a headline, the military like, or like, yeah, the military mostly like both all the uh, Tempo 
magazine edition. So first, they will like ban your books. Secondly, yeah. they will like buy all your books. So the more that they book your book ban, like everyone will like copy it. Oh, well, it's <laughs> like already there will, be, there will be black market for mm. it in Bahasa Indonesia. Well, this yeah, this already. It yeah, it, it doesn't work. People is going to find like it's getting popular. So the, there is like <laughs> both the book will be like popular because first it's banned or like the military will buy it and it's disappear <laughs> from the market. Everyone curious. Okay, we are going to copy this book because <laughs> the book disappear. So, so yeah, there's no. I mean, print more then, print more, <laughs> you know, print as the, much as you can, see how the, much they can buy. A, a bunch of people on Indonesians on social media have already uh, like right. messaged me because like they bought the, they bought the book on Tokopedia, which is like Indonesia's kind of like, you know, I don't know, uh, a local uh, website, um, like marketplace. And the, the version of the book they got is just somebody that printed it out and glued it together, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. my God, Sean That's what my that. brother, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, how my brother read your book, actually. Like, yeah, um, yeah. So once the translation exists into Bahasa, like anyone that wants to find it, they will, you know, if they're trading PDFs or printing out their own own edition. So that's they're they're just working on the translation, which is the main thing. So what do you think? Um, I mean, I just don't I guess I don't understand enough about the book industry that uh your publisher was thinking it wasn't gonna be big deal and uh well yeah it wouldn't it wouldn't be normally right i mean it's a it's a it's a number one serious <laughs> serious nonfiction is as a rule doesn't sell generally serious nonfiction is kind of they do it for prestige it makes them look good but then they make all of their money from twilight and harry potter and like self-help books and you know uh maybe like gina tolentino type like sort of uh uh you know re uh, reflections on things that everyone can relate to that's what really sell Mm -hmm. serious nonfiction usually doesn't sell, even if it's about something that everyone knows about, like the Vietnam War or the World War II. Now, serious nonfiction about Indonesia, which is a country that most, <laughs> most people Americans in- don't know. <laughs> yeah, most people in the US have never even heard of. It's just, you know, they thought it would be good. They thought it'd be like a medium-sized whatever, but it sold out right away. The, the first printing, I mean, they had to reprint it nine times wow. because the initial printing was like less than 10% of what was needed. It sold out for two months. Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of, they didn't, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was lucky. I mean, I think it was, yeah. it just hit at the right moment where everyone is in lockdown. And, and I was just, a lot of people needed somebody on their podcast or their YouTube show. So I just spent like all, all summer doing that. Mm -hmm. and I think it just got, got lucky that it hit. And also it's, you know, it's something that once people kind of like, wait, what is that? It's something they realized that they didn't know a lot about and that people should know more about, but it, yeah. It was just, I think, a lucky. It was supposed to be medium small, and by luck, it got medium big. But um... no, it's explosive. Like I want, I want everybody in the, uh, the Asian community to um, Asian diaspora to oh the diaspora um, yeah. to read the, this. Yeah, the Asian community that'd be four billion, sure, four yeah. billion people. Well, be, yeah, yeah I really want good. that for you. You know, yeah, or maybe <laughs> just the CIA bought every copy and like, <laughs> yeah. told you uh, that. Yeah. So the funny thing is that some of the Indonesian exile already read that book, and the first capture of that they send me is just my name i said what is your opinion about the book why you send that capture of <laughs> i feel like it's, it's like i think like it's a little disaster because like everyone i saw your name but yeah 
and then they just sat there. Yes, and? Yeah, they didn't stop sending that. I was like, why Vincent put that? My name. So everyone just like send that. Fabri! And even like Tan Wafio. Fabri, is that you? Your name in that? Who do you think Fabriana Firdaus? I think it's only one. So it's, yeah. it's, so, it's so funny. And I asked them, what is your opinion about the book? Yeah. Yeah. Some of them like, uh, it's very emotional. It's very hard. Yeah. Same with me. Like, yeah, that's like the first impression because it's about our life. Hmm. Someone wrote our life and it's, it's difficult. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I remember, I mean, I wanted to put that at the very beginning because usually you put your people that you think at the end, but I wanted to put on the first page because I wanted to really be like, okay, now these people really were there first and I'm really building on what they did. And another person in that paragraph was Josh Oppenheimer. But um, I told myself, so I watched The Act of Killing like many years ago. And then I told myself that I would rewatch it when I was writing the book and I couldn't watch it. Like I, I like sat down to watch it part two. And after having met everybody and really knowing the story, I couldn't, I was like, no, I can't, I can't ever, I can't ever watch that again. So I can't imagine what it would be like, you know, to pick up, you know, have be asked to read this book. I mean, I don't, you don't expect anyone to read it. Certainly anybody that it's going to be difficult for, but like Francesca, the kind of one of the main characters in the book, I think, I think probably the hero, I mean, it depends, you know, it depends on who you ask, but she read it and she said, of course, you know, that it was, she was very glad it came out. She lives in Amsterdam. She's probably the main character, but she said it was very, her, her daughter told me that it was, it was an emotional, emotional thing. And like, um, yeah, I can't even imagine if it, you know, if it I was- I think like for the, for the third generation, because uh, we feel guilty because we, we couldn't do anything because we, were, we, weren't, we weren't born yet, even mm. like, like me, I have never met my grandfather. And then um, if, if only I can, I could do something, but I wasn't born yet. I wasn't born yet. So that every time I, every time, so when I read the book, I feel so angry. I feel so upset and I feel like I didn't know what to do. And for like, I think the Indonesian exile feel like so relief because even like one of them, they had a dream in their dream that they meet their parents and they explained that to their parents that they are not criminals because uh, Indonesian government labeled them as a criminal Indonesian, like in uh, like the most of the Indo- uh, half of Indonesian label these people like as communist for follower and criminal. They even have that dream. So I think like some people, some of Indonesian exile read this book. They feel relieved because oh, I finally someone so someone like recognize me oh this is international book that i'm not a criminal mm-hmm. that's the only thing they they want like they are not a criminal so yeah th- some some they have like they can read that book very exciting but some like like me i'm like the third generation most of us cannot like read all the whole book in like a week <laughs> and they like every time i imagine oh my god this is like so tragic so yeah for us like the grandchildren it's very hard there's so many i think that the story there's so many untold stories like uh, i was telling my dad that um that i was interviewing you guys today and and he told me about 
his uncle who um, was writing, like sort of editing for a left-leaning uh, newspaper in, in Sarawak and then was arrested without trial and put in, like just disappeared for like eight years. And then he ended up, when he got out, he like tried to reintegrate, couldn't, jumped off a hospital building. Um, and then that's like a, like kind of a, a, a family secret. But that's Malaysia, that's the British. But I mean, it just sounds... What, what year was that? What year did he get uh, arrested, oh, if you don't mind me asking? Not sure. I can look it up, yeah. yeah. I wonder if that yeah, was that's the what happened. My dad told me. Yeah, that's what happened. Like everyone disappeared, right? With yeah. no explanation. And we are waiting. The thing is, people disappear. And I mean, my dad told me a similar uh, story. And none of the, the children, it's just not talked about. The children don't know where they are. Mm, like, where's yeah. my father? Where's my grandfather? Mm -hmm. Just gone. And then, even I think when they come out of prison, no explanation again and they're just sort of like brought back to society that's completely forgotten their sacrifice there's no acknowledgement yeah. of the sacrifice they've made yeah because it's like in let's say in the uk you know everyone's always proudly talking about the the, the grandfather's sacrifice and and the heroism and and this and that because the regime that sent them out is still in power but one. um yeah. and their, their history is represented and celebrated but um i guess if the regime's changed, um, then they become the enemy and it just becomes a, a really shameful secret. So, um, yeah. And continuing, yeah. I mean, even I think with your documentary for, for Brianna, Our Mother's Land, uh, you, or, um, you interviewed all these people that had protested and had like terrible things happen to them as a result of the protest. Mm -hmm. And then it didn't really work. <laughs> to say you know the corporations still have their hold on the land so talking about that loss that feeling of loss I remember when the first time I found out um, when my mother said that your grandfather he didn't pass away and it was just like what what didn't pass away what do you mean and then uh, she told me that she dis he disappeared and How yeah old were you? The, um, I was just in earlier in my university, in the university. So it was like it's my life like completely changed, and I still have this like very so many question about that. So till like yeah, she didn't tell me right away. This is the story, but like another day she told me, another day she told me another story. So it, it's it's a a really long process so that's why when I, I knew that I want to be a journalist and oh, I want to rewrite the history <laughs> so so that's why uh, when I wrote about 1965 I was very emotional because I don't know I was crying when I write mm -hmm. I was writing the story the article was like and then um, yeah including reading that book but the feeling of loss, I don't know. It, it's, it's not going anywhere. It's, it, even I know the story already. Like, I still feel like the same the first time I heard that he didn't pass away. And then it's, it's not disappeared from me until to this day. So I don't know how, like, everyone cope with this. I think every grandchildren has, like, this, why? Why this has happened? Why this has happened? So it's still a question. Do you think that feeling 
Um, about the injustice of it and the fact that it's not injustice, grief. I don't know, like yeah, I feel like why? Why does this happen? Like the grief, like if you know that where is the burial, like the funeral, right? And then okay, you can take a rest, but you don't know what's happened to him mm. and where is the funeral? What 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 happened? I don't know. I want to know. So oh, so you mean that um that when your mom said he disappeared, the idea is like really you don't even know if he has died or anything. He the last time that the military uh arrest him, that's it. Wow. So he could still be in prison. So, I don't know what happened, like everyone in that prison already killed so but no one told like what's happened exactly so i think like so many the third generation after found out about their grand grand uh father or mother they have like the question that lingering like me until today i feel curious until mm -hmm. to this day i feel like okay but what's happened it's like mm -hmm. i have the same dream almost every night I uh, took a train to my home in my village, but I never reached that home. That's like a crazy dream until to this day. And my mother have a dream chasing by the civilians like and military uh, almost every night. Wow. The same dream. I also have the dream because I don't, I don't feel like that I want to come to home and find out what's happened. So that dream haunted me every night, actually, almost every night. I always have a dream. I took the train. I'm going to finish this feeling of curiosity and grief. And I didn't, I cannot stop the train to my home in my village where my grandfather came from, like cannot stop. And it's haunted me until today. So I cannot imagine what happened with the other grandchildren. I, I don't know. Yeah. So this is just um, a little taste of what Vincent went through listening on our side, listening to yeah, incredible yeah. stories. And then um, I don't know how you facilitate that, Vincent, yourself, but I'm just like somewhat dumbstruck by <laughs> this. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's a whole, there's a lot of wrong ways to interview people about this kind of trauma. And there's mm. a, a very small number of right ways. And so the main thing to do is to, to learn how to avoid all of the wrong ways to talk to, to these people. So um, as I said, in solo, I, I spent a lot of time just kind of living in, in like down the road from a group of, of survivors that meet all the time. And a lot of what I did was just sort of sit with people and slowly get a sense of who actually really wanted to do this mm -hmm. and not really ever, don't ever press on the detail, you know, let them take the story where they want it to go, not press them on anything. And some people you would realize, okay, this person really like, 
really wants to do this and really wants to talk about this and other people you realize very quickly no they don't and if they don't you just let them finish where at wherever they want to finish and that's fine you thank them very much and then you use that bit of that interview to sort of inform inform the larger pro project in a um in a broad sense but you don't go back and say well no but tell me like were you or were you not in the party and like what happened mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. just because a lot of people you know and just you know find some people they slowly slowly over time a lot of people would tell me at the beginning oh no i wasn't involved in politics uh, before 1965 which is like okay i know that's not true but i'm gonna let let them decide over time if they trust me enough to actually tell me and then some people be like ah, actually no i was uh i was in the 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 youth wing or i was i was a full member i was a i was a a cadre you know as they say so which means we're really like brought into the party and took an oath and things and you know there were some of the people some of the people that ended up being really like the main characters of the people that really really wanted to do this so like uh francisca this amazing woman now in her mid-90s she has like a really sharp memory about everything that happened in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s uh and so she was amazing to be able to talk to forever and then sakono who is in solo who ended up being another main character he's somebody that like is still really like fierce about his left-wing convictions that he got in the in the early 60s and um you know like he, I just got like photos from him. Like his daughter just got married a couple weeks ago. He's doing really well. He really loves to like hammer home what what he the story that he wants to tell. But many, many, many other people, you realize very, very slowly, or you very realize very quickly, oh no, they didn't really want to do this. And it just it was just all about patience to to let other people decide if they want to be involved or not. Yeah, it's hard. Like it's hard because there's such a it's a line between the political and the personal that's like but deeply tragic as well. So it can it's a really hard place to negotiate from. Um Okay, I don't know if I have any more questions. I think we've we've talked for two hours and twenty yeah. minutes, which is amazing. Um, do you have anything to I mean, I'm sure we could talk forever, but that would be terribly imposing. So, um, do you have any? Um, thing you would like to? My cat is coming. <laughs> yeah. He wants to be in. Okay. Yeah. Here. The, the cat is cat now. Is the cat is now calling times. The cat needs Fabriana back. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I um no, I think this is this has been really good. I, all I would say is thank you to to the both of you and to Fabriana and to everybody that, you know, for whatever reason ended up showing interest in this. Um, I don't, uh, it's weird that it was me that wrote it as we, 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 we said at the very beginning, but I'm very glad this is somehow existing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm just really grateful to, to Fabriana and to both of you for, for, for Fabriana's help and her placing a little bit of trust in me a couple of years ago and for both of your uh, interest in, in, in all of this. I mean, it's a really great book and it's a very American book, actually, even though I said that in the beginning, it is such an American story um, that needs to be told. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you to Tanwapio. Who in <laughs> oh my gosh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Because I said, Vincent, this is like Tanwapio contact me. Like, yeah, I yeah. Like okay, no. I never, I cannot. Well, I never receive. I never like accept any like invitation. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. So I, thank you so much.
The Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity is available as a podcast on Spotify and Amazon Music. You can also like and subscribe to our videos on YouTube. And if you want to help us grow, then you can become a patron on Patreon. And that's it, right? I think that's, that's it. it. Yeah. <laughs>